Recorded live. Welcome to IEQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. Good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio for Friday, July 16, 2010. This week, episode 173 comes to you from Studio B in beautiful Coriopolis, Pennsylvania. My name is Joe Hughes of Radio Joe. Here with me back in the studio is the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. It's always fun to work with you, Joe. Good day, Cliff. We also have the intrepid environmental Annie and Koalecki at the controls. What's up? Good day, Annie, and today's segments include the microband trivia question. We've got a repeat appearance from one of our earliest and best guests, Dr. Harriet Burge, will be back to visit with us. I can't believe it's been almost four years since we had her on show three way back in 2006. Halftime, what's news with IE Connections and Glenn Feldman? The Roundup with Dr. Dieter, and of course, we've been updating and adding a blog to the website every week. Check it out at iaqradio.com. Before we start, we've got to thank our sponsors. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions, and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry East Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dries is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at johndon, J-O-N-D-O-N.com. And our new marquee sponsor, Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management, who provide management best practices and in-depth cleaning solutions help keep readers ahead of the curve and successful in their daily operations. Visit them at www.cleanfacts.com and www.cmmonline.com for more information on these invaluable resources and to subscribe. Be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. Okay, don't forget we also have those ABIH, IICRC, and ACAC renewal credits by emailing me. Just request a quiz. My email is joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's microband trivia question. Thanks, Joe. Win a cool prize by outcompeting fellow IAQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. Email it to czlotnick at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show live via your computer, just text in your answer. Congratulations to Andy Krasowski of, Con- of Concast Metal Products Company in Mars, Pennsylvania, for answering the last microband two-part trivia question by identifying Johann William Ritter as the scientist who in 1801 discovered ultraviolet light and Robert Williams Wood as the physicist and inventor who is best known for giving birth to the term black light effect. Now for the microband trivia question for Friday, July 16, 2010. Name the two fungi responsible for the most prevalent fungal infections in hospitals. Back to you, Joe. All right. Thank you, Cliff. Today's guest is Dr. Harriet Burge. She is the Director of Research and Development for Environmental Microbiology Laboratory, also a 
still a senior lecturer at the Harvard School of Public Health. She's participated in editing the entire ACGIH bioaerosols book and wrote about six chapters. And she's been doing aerobiology research for nearly 40 years now overall, primarily concentrating on airborne allergens. Dr. Burge joined us way back in September 2006 on show number three here at IAQ Radio, and we're looking forward to welcoming her back. I think we have some intro music. There's a leak in the soul building, and my soul, I'll tell you my soul, I'll tell you my soul, i got to move, there's a leak in the soul building. I just love that one. <laughs> Hello, Dr. Burge. Do we have you on the line? You do, yes. Good Great. morning. Uh, good morning, and thanks for joining us again. It's been four years since you were here. It's hard to believe, almost four years. Um, yeah. That was September. Yeah, we, uh, we really appreciate it. You got us off with a bang here about uh, on episode three, and we really appreciate it. It's great to have you back. Sure. Um, over that last four years, a lot of things have happened. You know, there, a lot of new research has come out, and we started with there's a leak in this old building. And I just wanted to uh, maybe get your comments on what what you've seen come down the pike the last four years, and has it um, you know has it changed any of your thoughts? I think the the what's come down mostly is the um, uh, more emphasis, increasing emphasis on moisture relationships in buildings and the fact that many um, IEQ investigations, at least with regard to mold, have to do with with moisture patterns, with mapping moisture patterns in buildings. Um, and I, I think that's a good, a good uh, direction we should be going in. Great. And, and I'm just curious that, you know, the World Health Organization came out with their indoor air, you know, guidelines for indoor air quality, dampness and mold in about 2009 now, and it seems like more and more information is coming that indicates people are having some kind of health problems as the result of living in these damp buildings or working in them. I'm just curious, what are your thoughts on their findings, and then why do you think people have these health issues, if, if you feel that way? I think some people do have health issues related to moldy buildings. I think there's is evidence that um, living in damp, moldy spaces um, leads to childhood respiratory illness. Um, the evidence isn't really strong for other kinds of effects other than, um, it, other than worsening asthma. If you have asthma and you live in a moldy house, the asthma is certainly going to be worse. So um, the rest of the health effects data is still really weak, actually. And part of that, I think, is because the, the way the studies are being done um, aren't focused uh, in, a, in a way that would lead you to find the effects, or at least to either to find them or to completely eliminate them. So I think it's still an open question. So we we have to refocus the studies and, and look at them yeah. from a different perspective? Or? I think so, or find better ways of measuring exposure. Um, right now, the, the field in general, at my level, and at the National Institutes of Health, they don't feel that mold is a big problem. I mean, they they know it's out there, and it's certainly um, <laughs> there's lots and lots of moldy houses, but they don't feel that the health effects are um, it, that we see in indoor environments have to have to do with mold exposure. Um, and I think part of that is um, is true that many of the health effects that are reported have nothing to do with mold exposure. But um, but to just outright dismiss the whole question, I think, is a mistake which makes it difficult for the research community because funding is no longer available um, to, to do mold-related uh, research. Um, I think that if the research projects were properly designed, we could focus on specific exposures instead of just mold, but very specific exposures, and either eliminate them. For example, the mycotoxin thing. We could eliminate that, or we could document it one way or the other if the studies were properly done. Uh, getting them done is going to be a major issue because the uh, at least the um, National Institutes of Health is really not supporting those much anymore. Interesting. Well, we'll get back to some of those other organisms that are in damp environments in a minute, but I know Cliff had a question. Uh, I think it has may relate to your own situation. Huh? Yeah, actually, uh, I had a water dam on my house. We had really, really, or, I'm sorry, an ice dam. We had really, yeah. really bad winter here. 
and I ended up having some water intrusion, and I have this moldy spot in the ceiling in my living room, and I'm not sure that I really want to have it opened. So I guess the question is, uh, can dried mold be safely allowed to remain in a wall or ceiling cabinet? I'd like your kind of comments on that. I think it can be safely allowed. Um, a lot of people disagree with me on that, and I don't know whether they have information that I don't have. There are situations where you would not want to leave mold in the walls, um, very um, uh, high-risk situations where, for example, you know you have an asthmatic that is very sensitive to mold. Uh, you probably would not want to leave the mold in the house, but if everybody is normal and nobody is having symptoms, and the, the mold in general doesn't get out of the wall if it's in there, it's it doesn't get out, and you can actually prevent it from getting out by even just by putting those little plugs in your electrical outlets, you know, that to prevent kids from sticking stuff in them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Those little covers, um, and because those are the major openings where the mold comes out of the wall and into the house. And in general, you don't see much mold coming out except on rare occasions. Um, and the, whether or not it comes out, of course, depends on the wind direction and so forth. But just doing that one little thing would um, would uh, prevent the small chance that that um, mold would come out. Most of the time I've done it, I've, well, the studies that I've actually done looking directly at those electrical outlets haven't shown much that, that of the mold getting into the house. You know, can, you know, the reason that I posed the question is when I was preparing for the interview, I was tooling around on your uh, planet mold uh, site, and, you know, I was just kind of fascinated by, you know, this particular article. And, uh, in talking about mold in, inside of walls, uh, can you just uh, advise the listeners about the situation that you had in this classroom uh, in a school? Planet, planet mold site. It's on the M Lab. Yeah, I'm sorry, it's on M Lab. Oh, it's on the M Yeah, right. And we should have we should have clarified too. I don't even know if I did in the introduction mention your position at M Lab P and K. Okay, yeah. great. You did. Um, I write those. I do write those articles. I'm not always quite sure where they end up. <laughs> so, okay. Um, I'm a long way from corporate headquarters. Let's put it that way. Okay. The, um, yeah. Uh, the um, well, I, in general, what I said in that article is what I feel. I don't think in most cases you need to worry about mold in walls as long as you've completely solved. The water problem. If you haven't solved the water problem, then, well, you still there's no point in taking the mold out because it's just going to grow right back. Um, but if you have completely solved the mold problem and the insides of the walls are documentedly dry, then I don't think the mold in those walls is of great concern, with the exception of places like a school, for example, where you have an asthmatic child who's complaining at school, that's the first place I would look if you have an asthmatic child coming to school and being sick at school. Um, I would look at the, uh, I, would, I would test to see if the mold is getting out of the walls and into the, into the classroom. Now, the reason I don't just say to take the mold out of the walls of a classroom is that in general, schools can't afford to do that. Um, I know in the school that I volunteer in here in, uh, in uh, California, they absolutely cannot afford to do that. <laughs> they have to struggle to pay their teachers. So, um, so anything we can do to lessen the hardship um, on the schools is a good thing, and I and I think that's one of the things. On the other hand, if you do have a child like that that comes in and starts, now the mold isn't prob- isn't going to cause their asthma in the first place. It's just going to make it worse if they already are sensitized. So. Um, so I, I would I would adopt a wait and see attitude in those kinds of cases. That, that's uh, helpful. We're, I'm working on a project now where we're wrestling with that issue. You know how far to go with respect to getting the area safe, and we'll we'll definitely uh, refer them back to IAQ Radio, and they can listen to one of the experts speak to that. Let's yeah. talk a little bit more about other uh, issues. You know, Cliff's got a question here: floods molds and rats is fungal growth predictable mold growth during flooding so what <laughs> is it predictable absolutely i mean well it depends now i've i've been involved in flooding situations where the water has been cleaned up within 24 hours and we've seen no mold growth at all um and that's 
if you can get the water out and everything dry within 24 hours, you're in good shape. You probably will not get significant mold growth. You may get tiny, tiny amounts, and you may have a very slight odor, but nothing that anybody's going to be damaged by. In the case that I was involved with was a hospital, and it was carpeted, a carpeted clinical area, big area, and they um, jumped right on it and got the carpets dry and nothing. We, we, sampled, we sampled throughout the whole procedure. We put up air samplers. It was kind of a test case for me. And we never, ever saw an increase in um, any kind of fun fungi at all in that space. Um, if you wait more than 24 hours and it's warm and humid, um, you're going to get mold. And uh, if, if the water stays there longer than that, you'll get lots of mold. In general, the mold doesn't grow under the water. It grows at the interface between the water and the air uh, in, on surfaces. So, um, now, you know, in, in the hurricanes and in the big major floods, when you go into those houses after the fact, you see a line right around where the flood water stopped. <laughs> and above that is moldy, and below that it's generally not. What about other um, other organisms that come as the result of dampness, like insects and rodents. Let me give you a specific. I've got a, a project we're looking at now that we've got a lot of, it's public housing, so we have people that obviously don't have the financing, in this case at least, to remove all the walls. So we've got some mold, but we also have some fairly significant insect infestation. Where would you concentrate your, uh, your money if you had those two to choose between, can we remove more walls or can we do more with, say, respect to integrated pest management? I would do integrated pest management. Um, cockroaches are one of the major sources of allergens for children, and um, in the inner cities especially, in the, in the low-income housing. And it's very, very difficult to get rid of cockroaches unless you can do the entire building. But I would certainly make the effort. I think that they're, they're uh, far more of a hazard than the mold, um, unless you've got just squishy mold conditions. I mean, I wouldn't leave that. But if it's just, you know, is there mold or isn't there mold, if it's not clear and the mold isn't growing all over the walls, I would focus on the cockroaches. Assuming they're cockroaches you're talking about, whatever insect it is, but I just know cockroaches become enormously abundant in some of this housing. And the poor tenants have no control because it takes one tenant in an entire building to, to infest the place with cockroaches. Right. And yeah. all the rest of the people who are working so hard to keep their places, you know, livable and comfortable, it's hopeless. You can't do it with somebody, with even one person not paying attention. Cliff? Okay. Uh, what is actinomycetes and, you know, where are they found? Uh, why would they be important to indoor environmental professionals? And do you have any recommendations for sampling for this particular sure. organism? Yeah. Um, the actinomycetes are actually bacteria. And they're, they're filamentous bacteria, meaning they, they form long threads. And they actually make spores that can be airborne. And they're the only bacteria that do that. Um, they, make, they look like fungi, and they used to be called fungi until we could look at them um, more, in more detail biochemically and structurally. And it turns out they're, they're, they're bacteria. <laughs> um, they are common, common, common in the environment. In fact, when you, t when you dig in the garden and you smell that really nice, fresh garden soil smell, that is actinomycetes. So that's what's causing that odor. It's kind of a, a soil odor. It's very pleasant, actually. It's not unpleasant at all. Um, there are also a group of actinomycetes that only will grow at very warm temperatures, and they tend to occupy areas, uh, in houses at least, on the surfaces of, of uh, heating, heating elements that stay wet, or in large buildings. I've seen them many times in large buildings where the spray humidification or some kind of humidification is causing damp surfaces that are actually warm to the touch. Uh, 50 degrees centigrade is the temperature you have to use in order to culture these organisms. Um, now, there's a differences of opinion on the importance of the actinomycetes. The non-thermophiles, the regular actinomycetes that are common in soil, the uh, researchers in Finland believe that the organic compounds produced by those organisms cause respiratory irritation. Um, 
I am not totally convinced of that, but it's not impossible. It very well could be. And they, they look at the actinomyces as being one of the important things in indoor air. And as far as, as uh, discovering those, you can do that with, with just uh, regular bacterial culture um, at normal temperatures. The thermophilic actinomyces are a different story. They have been clearly shown to cause quite serious disease in some cases, uh, pneumonia, hypersensitivity, pneumonia. And um, in order to detect those, you have to collect samples and incubate the, uh, for bacteria on bacterial culture media and incubate them at 50 degrees centigrade. I, I can't in my head do the conversion, but that's very warm, very, very warm. If you don't do that, they'll be invisible. They just will not grow. They have to have that, that temperature in order to get their metabolic machinery going. Um, and if, if uh, in any case where there is a... A, a, a suspicion of hypersensitivity pneumonitis in a, in, a, in a house or in a building or anywhere else. I always look for those, always. Hmm. And that would be, so what type of sampling would you recommend then? Would you do have some do, airborne have to do culture sampling? Yeah, airborne okay. sampling. It would have okay. to be airborne. Yes, absolutely. And it has to be cultural sampling. These are very, very tiny organisms. You can't identify them. In fact, they wouldn't be effectively, uh, efficiently collected by a spore trap. So you need to use something like an Anderson sampler or the biocassette that actually um, is efficient for small particles. And you're looking for very high levels, not just one or two, but quite high levels. Um, I've seen them in levels of 100,000 spores per cubic meter of air. Uh, the places where you see the most are, um, as I said, in central ventilation systems where there's water present and, and heat at the same time. Hot tub environments, they've been, there's several different hot tub um, cases. Compost uh, piles, if you go and dig in a compost pile, you're exposing yourself to masses of these. Um, and if you start feeling ill, feverish, and flu-like after that, it may very well be that you've uh, exposed yourself to those. Um, once you've been exposed and developed a sensitivity, um, you have to be really careful with exposure from then on. What type of, what's the treatment? Steroids. Uh, okay, interesting. Now, while we're talking about treatment and uh, opportunistic infections and, and, and uh, things of that nature, in a hospital environment, what are the most common sources of opportunistic infections in general? And then maybe we could go from there down to the fungi. Well, Opportunistic infections in, in hospitals almost always, or most of 90% of the time, are caused by indigenous organisms, organisms that are um, already in the host's body, like candida is the biggest one, uh, absolutely the biggest, most important. And then some of the, of the uh, bacterial infections, like some of the staph infections, all of these that you, you, you have lots of resistance to them as long as you're healthy, but when, you, when your immune system starts to deteriorate, then you um, become susceptible to these, these almost symbiotic organisms. Candida, for example, all of us, every single person in the world has candida somewhere <laughs> on their body, uh, but it doesn't hurt anything. It doesn't do anything until you become um, debilitated in some way. So that's absolutely the most important. Um, as well, and for the bacteria as well. Um, pneumocystis uh, that is, a organ, is a fungus, actually, that AIDS patients get. And recent data indicates that that actually is transmissible from one person to another. And in other words, it's an airborne organism. Um, and so that's another thing. If you have ill people with a particular organism, in some cases it will be present in the environment and then can infect other people. So that's another really important um, opportunist. Um, these are fungi. I'm, I know more about the fungal opportunists than the bacterial ones. Um, Cryptococcus is another one that is um, an opportunist that is very, very common in the environment, uh, and um, most people are never infected with it, but um, AIDS patients, for example, have a high rate of infection with, with Cryptococcus, and it's just an environmental organism. It comes in on people's clothes and from the air. Uh, mycobacterium is another one. The non-tuberculous mycobacteria um, are common in water. They're common um, in soil. They're common virtually everywhere. Uh, it's difficult to avoid exposure to them. Um, it's often water systems that carry um, uh, organisms that lead to epidemics in hospitals. Uh, so that's the, the next one. And you know, we the fungi that we're familiar with. <coughs> 
excuse me, um, aspergillus. We always think of aspergillus right off with the fungi, and it's down the list quite a ways with respect to to these other organisms. Actually, mycobacteria is a bacterium, not a fungus. But um, aspergillus fumigatus, there's a lot of ways. It's it's common in the outdoor air. So if you don't have properly filtered air in places where immunocompromised people um, um, are housed, then the chances are good that you will have an outbreak. Um, The other thing is that people do bring it in on their clothing, and um, it is clear that if you have anterooms where people actually take off their outer clothes and even put on something, uh, you know, a protective layer before visiting an immunocompromised patient, that that reduces the, the risk of, um, of uh, opportunistic fungal infections. Um, and then, of course, Aspergillus fumigatus loves to grow almost anywhere where it's warm, and so they will grow on filters. And if you have them on the downstream um, side of the filter, which they will grow right through a filter, they will decay the, actually eat the filter material, um, then you have a real problem. What type of filter? Um, um, These are HEPA filters in, in HEPA. surgical suites. Uh, okay. HEPA filters, yeah. If those HEPA filters, you know, you have to humidify surgical suites mm-hmm. and so for the electrical equipment, and if you do that humidification wrong so that those filters stay wet, they're going to grow aspergillus. Interesting. Uh, there's a text question here. I just want to run this by before I forget. We got a, a text question from a guest um, or from a listener. Can you remark about the spore trap data obtained in the EPA base study? Uh, is that data a predictor of water damaged buildings? The EPA base study was um, actually designed to look at not non water damaged buildings. Um, it was the, the buildings were not to be. They were selected on the basis of not having reported water damage. So no, I don't think it is. I, I don't think it's useful. It's supposed. They were hoping it would be useful as a baseline data set. In other words, if if you were within the range of the base data, then you were probably okay. Um, you know, I don't. In in a large in a big epidemiological study, you might be able to use that kind of information. But as far as a guideline for interpreting data that you collect on site in a particular building that you're studying, um, I don't think it's particularly helpful. What, what would be helpful in, you know, a- interpreting that type of data that people collect? Obviously, we'd, we'd always like more data, but, um, and we can talk more about that later, but if we've got a, a limited sampling set, what types of documents would you recommend people go to for assistance in learning how to interpret that? Well, you know, I, I developed the mold score uh, at MLAB for that purpose, um, and I think it's helpful. I think it's as one piece of information. The mold score, by the way, is, um, is a, a statistical method for looking at uh, air sampling data, comparing it to the outdoor level, outdoors, and putting in a lot of other factors that have to be considered if you're going to do indoor-outdoor ratios, and then coming up with a score that gives you somewhat of a probability of whether there's a mold problem in the space. And that, that um, statistic relies on a huge database that, that uh, we have of 200,000 samples for outdoor air. So it gives you a pretty good estimate. You know, if you just do one outdoor and indoor air sample, you're really uh, at the whim of nature to, for getting the outdoor sample to be um, really indicative of what goes on in the outdoor air in that space. So that's that's one of the ways of doing it. Um, I've actually proposed very, very rough guidelines for dust fungi, and I hope to be able to do that for air fungi at some point. Um, I'm writing the, the dust fungal paper now. Um, I can't tell you exactly what the numbers are. I don't want to do that um, without <laughs> until I've actually finished the paper because I think that would be a little dangerous. People tend to grab onto guidelines and uh, and use them. Right. Um, are, you, but, are you doing that for MLAB as well? That's what I'm doing it for is MLAB, yeah. Okay. It'll come and out either in, it'll come out either as an ER in MLAB or uh, on that site that you t- that you mentioned or as one of the Ask Dr. Burge articles. Okay. Well, what what type of analysis are we doing? Is it culturable sample analysis? This is culturable dust sampling. Okay. Yeah. And there is some evidence that culture is important for for fungi. Um, There's some evidence that indicates that the fungi really do have to be alive in order to um, 
cause their health effects. What about, um, can you comment on using uh, polymerase chain reaction PCR techniques with, with respect to this dust sampling? You can use that. Um, the, the big problem with PCR is that you have to know what you're looking for before you start. Now, I know this, um, this um, ERMI method, um, they have a panel of things, and they, they uh, analyze the dust and give you a, and do some calculations and tell you whether a house is moldy or not. I don't like that method. Um, I think that it's not well documented yet. I think the fungi they're looking for are not necessarily the ones that are common in dust. Uh, in fact, I know very well of a study where the, um, <laughs> there were hundreds of thousands, millions of trichodermospores in the dust, and the ERMI results essentially said the place was clean. So um, I know that it, it misses significant things. Now, in a large epidemiological study where you can afford a mistake now and then, uh, it works. It, it may be very valuable. But in your kind of invest, in our kind of investigations where we're investigating individual buildings to help people be comfortable, it, it doesn't work. All right. Well, it's, it's not, it is right at. How, did you want to add something? No, I just said it's not safe to use that. It's not safe to rely on a method like that. Okay. We're right at halftime here, so we're going to take our little halftime break, thank our sponsors, bring Glenn Feldman on for just a minute, and then we'll bring you back for the second half. Okay, great. Thank, thank you. you. The Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor, software technology, and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Pro Restore for cleaning, odor removal, and antimicrobial products, remediators trust and depend on. Visit them at prorestoreproducts.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dries Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings, Dries is first in drying solutions. Learn about them at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanfacts.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. A newspaper man has to have a good story. Writing just news is so factually boring. I get a sign that I am the scapegoat for all of the groups. I'm mostly a figure they laugh at, but then I am the a leader of men. All right, do we have our leader of men and women on the line? Hello, Glenn. Hello, Joe, Cliff, good. and Dr. Burge. How are you today? Hey, great, great. Very good. What's news there, Glenn? Oh, I got a couple good items for you today. First one, uh, out of the chute here, the state of Florida has chosen... Uh, ACAC exams for their new mold licenses. Uh, the American Council for Accredited Certification, ACAC, announced that as of July 1, 2010, it is the exclusive provider of mold license examinations for the state of Florida. ACAC signed an exclusive contract with Florida's Department of Business and Professional Regulation, otherwise known as DBPR, whereby all applicants for licensure by examination under Florida's new mold-related services law must have passed one of six ACAC certification exams. Applicants for the Florida Mold Assessor License can take the Council Certified Indoor Environmentalist, or CIE, the Council Certified Indoor Environmental Consultant, CIEC, or the Council Certified Microbial Consultant, CMC, examinations. Those who are uh, applying for Florida's mold remediator license 
can take the council-certified microbial remediator, CMR, council-certified microbial remediation supervisor, CMRS, or the examination for the council-certified indoor environmental supervisor, CIES. If you hold one of these ACAC certifications in good standing, I got good news. You're already qualified for the Florida license. You can download the license application for people who can grandfather in at www.myfloridalicense.com. Florida's decision to rely on ACAC exams reinforces ACAC's position as a leader for independent professional certifications. According to Charlie Wiles, the executive director of ACAC, their exams were chosen in part because the exams are based on widely accepted industry texts and not on proprietary training courses, and they're developed by independent industry experts according to stringent psychometric principles and administered in compliance with international consensus standards. Uh, ACAC designations are also, by the way, incorporated into licensing regulations currently in Maryland and Arkansas, and ACAC reports that it has entered into discussions with several other states who plan mold legislation in the near future. That's story number one. I want to get a comment from Dr. Burge on this old licensing issue there, Glenn. She doesn't pull any punches, does she? No. (laughs) I like that. I'd like to to hear comments on that. I would. I have two more stories. I'll go to the next one. You let me know if I have time for the third, okay? All right. All right. This one is uh, having to do with the RRP rule. A coalition of housing industry groups joined the National Association of Home Builders, that's NAHB, on July 8th in announcing plans to file a lawsuit against the Federal Environmental Protection Agency for removing the opt-out provision from its lead renovation, repair, and painting rule. The LRRP rule applies to homes constructed before 1978 when lead paint was banned. The opt-out provision, which expired on July 6th, let consumers allow contractors to bypass extra preparation cleanup and record-keeping requirements in homes where there were no children under six or any pregnant women, thus avoiding additional costs. Uh, According to the NAHB Chairman Bob Jones, removing the opt-out provision more than doubles the number of homes subject to the regulation. He went on to say about 79 million homes are affected, even though EPA estimates that only 38 million homes contain lead-based paint. Removing the opt-out provision extends the rule to consumers who need no protection. Joining NAHB are the Hearth, Patio, and Barbecue Association, the National Lumber and Building Material Dealers Association, and the Window and Door Manufacturers Association. They are filing a petition for review in the U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, and the group will challenge EPA's actions on the grounds that the agency substantially amended its LRRP regulation without any new scientific data and before the regulation was even put into place on April 22, 2010. So this is a story that will not go away, and we're going to keep hearing about it for a long time. We'll have to keep. We'll be following that uh, very closely, Glenn. That's that's interesting, and uh, that rule has caused a lot of controversy. I'll tell you, it's it's uh, it's a tough one. Tough to pick sides on that one, actually. Um, it, it is. It is a tough one. And, uh, you know, on the on the one hand, I speak to a lot of advocates for, for child uh, safety who point out that there are hundreds of thousands of children in this com- uh, country whose uh, brain development is compromised by lead exposure and that that can be mitigated. On the other hand, I talk to an awful lot of contractors who say this came up on them too fast and they're just not ready. So depending on who you talk to, there's a lot of positions. How about giving us the title of the last one, and then we'll we'll, uh, take it from there. All right. Well, this is a quickie. Uh, Louisiana Governor Bobby Jindal, who has uh, been busy with the Gulf oil issue, uh, uh, has some other things going on, too. What's Bobby up to? Well, he signed a new law that bans insurance companies from dropping the policies of homeowners who have toxic Chinese drywall in their homes. The new uh, Louisiana drywall insurance law will be in effect until June 1, 2013 and it prevents insurance companies from abandoning desperate homeowners who find that they have imported Chinese drywall in their homes. Okay. Well, thanks, Glenn. We appreciate you joining us. Are you going to stop back for the roundup? I'll be on for the roundup, and and you can uh, hear a lot more about the uh, stories I just uh, told and get some more detail in the August edition of Indoor Environment Connections, reaching people's mailboxes in roughly the second week of the month.
And online at what, ieconnections.com? Online the first of each month at www.ieconnections, with an S on the end, dot com. Great. Thank you. Um, We're good on that. Let's move on. Let's get Dr. Burge back on the line. Hello, Dr. Burge. Interesting uh, interesting news briefs today. I'm curious what your thoughts are on on licensing of people who do, well, in this case, it's specific to mold investigations. Yeah, I do have opinions on that, on the floor. Uh, the Florida regulations, um, I actually wrote a letter to them uh, regarding the qualifications required for applying for a license. Um, The qualifications don't cover what I consider the most important thing, which is a good founding in uh, moisture relationships in buildings. I think that without that, um, you're not going to be able to it's going to be very difficult to come up with accurate um, data from investigations. Uh, they use, they say you have to have um, a degree in microbiology or engineering or architecture or industrial hygiene. Um, all of those things have components, have small components that relate to, to our field, but none of them focus on it. And you can certainly go through, even in industrial hygiene um, training, you can go, get a degree and even a CIH in industrial hygiene and not know anything about mold investigation. Uh, so um, I, I really think the emphasis should have been more on being intelligent, <laughs> having experience, um, and having had a significant uh, amount of education in moisture relationships. And if you don't know about microbiology, I mean, none, n- nobody knows about microbiology really unless they've actually studied microbiology intensively. And, and it isn't the key thing. There are many people who don't know anything about microbiology who are doing really wonderful jobs out there um, just because they know how buildings operate and they know the moisture part and, um, and they do know enough about the aerosol can be produced to, to provide adequate protection. So I, I really kind of I really objected to their um, to their um, background requirements. Okay. Well, I I appreciate that. I think obviously you know we've been pushing that here for years on IAQ Radio all the way back to the first couple of shows with you and others that if we don't solve the moisture problems, we're wasting our time. That's right. And uh, That's we've right. got to have good building science people out there doing that. So well. We'll just have to keep an eye on it and let you know how things come out. We'll keep our listeners okay. informed. <laughs> All right. All right. Let's let's talk a little bit more about um sampling real quick because people always ask these questions about, you know, how many samples do you have to take? And I noticed earlier you, you had mentioned just taking one outdoor sample was kind of like, you know, a shot in the dark essentially that you may or may not get a good representation of what the outdoor air is like in that area on that day. How many should we take if if we're doing an investigation uh, to try and get some some accuracy on our results? Well, in the first place, I don't really think you need to sample at all, um, and you probably know this. I I, uh, I know you have to because for legal reasons and because people demand data, but in general, it doesn't add to an investigation. You already know before you collect a sample what you're going to find almost always. If you see mold around, in fact, you may see this mold and you may know that there's a major problem and you do the sample and it comes up negative. So um, in general, sampling isn't, in, for most investigations, air sampling, just standard air sampling is not necessary. Um, you can do very focused strategy-driven sampling and come up with some really good information. For example, earlier we talked about mold in the walls, and if you if you want to know whether it, there is any mold coming out of the walls, you can do some focused sampling to determine that, and that can be very helpful, and sometimes you can get that answer with just a couple of samples, and you don't need outside samples to do that. You just have a focused place where you sample and a, a very strict protocol. Um, Lots and lots and lots of people use indoor-outdoor ratios, and I guess some of the organizations stress the use of indoor-outdoor ratios. And um, you can't use one sample indoors and one sample outdoors alone as as an indicator of the status of an indoor environment. Now, occasionally you'll get an indoor um, um, sample that's just covered with penicillium and nothing outdoors, and you can say, well, there's a problem in here, but 
That's rare. You know, most of the time it's equivocal. You look at those things and you'll get a ratio of 100 and you think, oh my God, this is a horrible place. And then you'll find out that the reason you got that huge ratio is because there was nothing in the outside air. And, and so, or very little on your outside air sample. So I don't think those are valuable at all. The, um, as I said earlier, the mold score helps because you can look at the, um, at that data, that includes a lot of background data on the outdoor aerosol. There's also the um, mold range, which actually is an analysis of our huge data set on outdoor concentrations, and we're actually modifying that to be zip code specific, hmm. so that when you when uh, when you get a mold range um, sample, you you get a you get a, a mold range data, you get data for the specific zip code that your sample was collected in. And that can be very helpful because it will tell you how reliable your one outdoor sample is. Now, I don't, you, you'd have to collect too many. You could collect two or three or four, and it would be better. Any, anything is better than one. Anything is better than one. But you really can't, practically speaking, collect enough samples to make a statistically reliable sample without, relating it to, without having to relate it to some other um, larger database. Okay. That- that certainly clears that up. Well, I just wanted to, I know what I heard you say, but would you say that zero is better than one in terms um, of sampling? You know, zero is better than one sample, in my opinion, yes. Okay. Um, if, you're, if somebody is actually demanding air samples, then one is fine because it wouldn't matter. It doesn't matter. I mean, even if you took 10, it wouldn't be really really accurate as far as, as this deciding what the environment looks like. So 10 is better than one, obviously, but you'd have to do 10. And in most cases, you can't do that. If it's a very large building and they've got millions of dollars to spend, fine. Um, but in general, that's not what we're dealing with. We're dealing with small places where, where um, one or two samples is the most you can do. Uh, and if that's the case, really, unless there's reason unless you have somebody insisting on having sampling done i i don't i, I don't usually recommend it um wait that's not going to hurt uh, so many people demand sampling data that it's not going to hurt mlab's business any for me to say this uh, uh, anyway i say what i please <laughs> without without um, well, whatever we but we're catching um, on to that I, I just think that sampling is overrated as a real means for investigating in um mold in in indoor environments well, let me, let me take this down a little different avenue here and, and try and combine two things. We've been talking about things that have occurred over the last four years since your last visit with us. We've been talking a little bit about sampling and different type of organisms. Um, a lot of our people deal with remediation. Over that past four years, the AIHA Green Book came out, and there was a pretty significant shift in there with respect to post-remediation, we'll call it verification, clearance, whatever people want to call it, um, where they seem to shift toward uh, a gravimetric sample as opposed to uh, the type of sampling we oftentimes see today. What are your thoughts on that? On gravimetric sampling? Right. Um, <laughs> I don't think it tells you very much. Uh, in fact, there's, there's some really good literature that, that indicates that gravimetric sampling is, is not representative of what's in the air qualitatively or quantitatively. Okay. Um, now, if, if, they, um, if what you're looking for is what's falling out on surfaces, if that's your concern, is what's actually landing on surfaces, like in surgical um, operations where you want to know if F for coccus aureus is actually falling off of somebody and landing in a wound, gravimetric sampling is fine because you're looking for something falling. But if you're trying to determine whether air exposure is going to occur, then gravimetric sampling is not the way to go. I, I think their intent was to establish more of a cleanliness standard on surfaces. Oh, well, if that's what they're doing, that's fine. You can do that, except I wouldn't use gravimetric sampling. I would use tape sampling or some kind of a surface sampling technique. That's been used for years and years and years in hospitals where they have very clear standards of how many bacteria you can have per square centimeter of, of um, counter surface for specific environments. They have guidelines for that. Um, and uh, to use a, a settle plate, which is what you're talking about. And the hospitals used to do that too, but they don't anymore. They use surface, actually surface samples. Um, settle plates, you know, the slightest little wind over a breeze over a settle plate will interact with the edges of the plate and 
cause spores to either be oversampled or undersampled. And in general, it's undersampling that you get. And what you see on settle plates is a, is a, is a skew toward very large particles, which can fall without being disturbed by wind currents. Maybe but the things that we're mostly concerned about, penicillium and aspergillus, for example, aren't efficiently collected at all by settle plates. Now, maybe we, maybe I, I didn't phrase it right. They're, they're actually using a um, mixed cellulose ester filter, an MCE filter, and vacuuming up like a square foot of area, and then weighing that to determine how much dust is on that surface. Ah, Oh, okay. Well, that's and they're not looking at fungi. No. Oh well, that's fine. I don't have a problem with that. I I haven't read that part of it in a long time. Okay. okay. And I I've read it when it first came out, and I haven't I haven't really looked at it since. I um when you say gravimetric, um that's a gravimetric essentially means that you're using settled plate sampling or settling sampling. You're you're doing a measured sampling on a measured surface area and okay. kind of what you're saying. But yeah, you can do that. Um you can even culture those those uh, samples if you want and um and find out if you still have a large amount of um penicillium for example if that's what you had in the in the contamin as a contaminant. I've seen people do that quite successfully. It, it's kind of like the, the, the Vacuum sampling on surfaces, I think that's a good idea. Exactly. But you have to get enough um, dust. You know, a milligram, one milligram of dust isn't going to tell you anything because it's going to be very, you know, you have to divide by, uh, by the milligram. <laughs> and a milligram is very tiny. And so um, it, it, if you have only a milligram of dust per square Foot, then, uh, then you can't really use that as a sample to look at fungi, for example, because it's not enough dust to be to give you a representative idea. In other words, one spore is going to—if you get one spore in there—it's going to look like a lot on a on a whole square foot of surface. Okay. Now, what about let's let's go back. We're going to run low on time. I know it. I'm having so much fun here. It's going to be tough. But um, I've got a couple other ones. I don't want to skip over the environmental mycobacteria issue. You did touch on it earlier. I'm just wondering, you, you had done a presentation at the IAQA conference this year, and it seemed like that was a current interest of yours and something you felt people should focus on a little bit more. Can you give us a little bit more detail about why you feel it's uh, a current issue that people should focus on more and, and how they would incorporate that into their investigations? There are two concerns with environmental mycobacteria. One of them is... Um, that if you get exposed to high levels of aerosol from, from a mic where mycobacterium is growing, you can develop hypersensitivity pneumonitis. And this is a problem in the machining industry, um, where the machining coolants become contaminated with mycobacterium, and then the aerosols that are produced during machining cause illness in the workers. And there's other place hot tubs. Um, there have been a variety of, <clears throat> of cases, situations where mycobacteria have actually caused this disease, um, all with aerosols present. There have to be a large aerosol, not of just the bacteria, but there has to be a water aerosol. The other, other problem, of course, is, um, as, is the organisms as opportunistic pathogens, um, which we talked about earlier in hospitals. Um, water is usually the most likely source of the uh, of um, environmental infections in hospitals um, showers and um, just same as the similar places where you'd find legionella except not necessarily hot water uh, but but water they don't are not <clears throat> excuse me generally carried around on people's clothing or, and they're not contagious diseases in the sense that uh, um, well Tuberculosis is certainly very contagious. <clears throat> we don't know whether these opportunistic pathogens are contagious or not. We just haven't got enough data on that. What are, so you're looking at maybe shower heads and what other what types of sources? Tap water. You know, when you turn on the tap and the water splashes into the t into the sink or into a bathtub or shower heads, any of those places. Drinking water fountains can be pos can be sources. Um, humidifiers. Uh, respiratory equipment, respiratory therapy equipment, those kinds of humidifiers, spray humidifiers could easily be a source for mycobacterium aerosols. And how do you sample for these? Oh, it's culture. It's um, very specific culture. You need to know that that's what you're looking for. Um, it, the plates have to be incubated for quite a long time. 
compared to other bacteria. You know, they're actually, these are called fast-growing mycobacteria, and they take about seven to ten days to grow. Slow-growing ones take a month. <laughs> so um, they, you have to know what you're looking for. You have to tell the lab that you're looking for environmental mycobacterium, and they, they will know how to do it. And it's always culture, of course. Or you okay. could use PCR. In this case, you could use PCR. I see. Um, yeah, again, knowing exactly what you want, you'd have to give them the, the exact organism that you want, and then they could test the, the water for that organism. Okay. Let's go to our roundup now. This is where we bring everybody back in, and uh, we'll have Glenn and Dr. Wow, who's our technical director, and Cliff will ask one more question. We'll go around the horn here, and we'll try and wrap up in about 10 minutes. Can you hang in there an extra five minutes, Dr. Birch? Sure. Thank you. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up, move him on, move him on, hit him up, throw high. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, let him out, cut him out, ride him in, throw Okay, let's let's go to Glenn Feldman first. Glenn, do you have anything you'd like to round up with here for Dr. Birch? Absolutely. Good oh, afternoon, Dr. Birch. Uh, I met years ago after a presentation. Oop. Hello? You're back. Hello? Yeah, sorry, okay, yeah. Good afternoon, uh, Dr. Birch. I listened to you, oh, uh, several years ago during an Indoor Air Quality Association uh, meeting. And uh, one of the things that still uh, people have no understanding about is the behavior of mold spores and raindrops in the air. My grandmother, who was a neat lady, told me uh, that after a rainstorm, the air outside is 100% clean. Obviously, she had no idea what she was talking about the aerodynamic behavior of particles. Right. <laughs> and I'm telling people, I said, guys, when it is raining, and if you have your sampler out, don't let it rain in there. That is, that's for sure. But uh, the small particles are still all in the air. And after a rainstorm, when all the moles and fungi and mushrooms and whatever produce spores, it is going up. And then after it stops raining, all the ones that grew, they now get dry and a wind takes all that away. People don't seem well, to understand. Well, in addition to that, when it starts raining, there are many fungi out there that are splash dispersed. And as soon as it begins raining, the fungi, the fungal spore levels increase rapidly. And yeah. rain also induces to actually discharge their, some fungi to discharge their spores. Uh, and sometimes during a rain, storm, we'll find enormously high levels of ascospores, for example, which are forcibly sure. discharged in the rain. So, yeah, the, the rain is no, um, no indicator of clean air as far as, uh, as far as fungi are concerned. Thank you. I have been preaching that for years. My background, I have spent my whole life, uh, my professional life, uh, with particles and air infiltration and, and behavior over there. Uh, that is terrific. I also, I am so glad that you finally got some recognition. You are working in the broad field of mycology or microbiology, whatever you want to call it, for so many years. To, and you started it when molds and fungi were not sexy. And, uh, <laughs> they were to me. They were all to me. <laughs> but, I mean, and, and you mentioned it again. The funding is gone again. You know, it's not yeah, breast cancer, colon cancer. That it sounds yeah, HIV. That sounds terrific. <laughs> well, very... I like what I do. I've always enjoyed it, and I I joined the mycology community because I thought the fungi were beautiful. Yeah, but they. I tell you one thing: if you look under them under the microscope, they certainly are. And yeah. here is a very absolutely. One. You mentioned that you incubated something, whatever it was, at 50 degrees Celsius. Yes. Here is my way of getting a handle on what that is in degrees Fahrenheit. 
you double it. 50 plus 50 is 100 plus 30. It's actually 32, but I don't know. I can add to it. It's about 130 degrees Fahrenheit. Yes, it's, it's warm. It's very warm. It is right. very warm. It's hotter than uh, Arizona. Yep. And you can go the <laughs> other right. way. If, right. it is under, if it is 100 degrees Fahrenheit, you subtract 30, you get to 70. Then you divide by 2, you get 35. It may be 36 or something like that. I don't care. <laughs> but anyway, yes. that's the easy way of doing it. And congratulations again to our loyal listener, Andy. I know him. And he won a <laughs> lot of power trivia question answers. Okay, terrific, terrific to hear from you again. And I'm Thank looking you. forward to meet you again and sit down and we talk about aerodynamic behavior of particles in the air. Yeah, we'll have to do that. <laughs> Thank Thanks, Dr. Wow. We always appreciate you joining us. Uh, let's get Glenn Feldman on the line. Glenn? Hello. Uh, great show today. Dr. Burge, we have had the uh, the great pleasure and honor of publishing uh, a column from you in Indoor Environment Connections newspaper for many, many years now called Ask Dr. Burge. It is absolutely one of the most popular columns that we feature each month. In July, uh, the title for your, your column was, How Do I Test for the Presence of Chinese Drywall? That was a question that one of our listeners, or excuse me, one of our readers had, uh, had submitted, and you wrote a great article on it. In the article, you say, uh, there is generally no need to use laboratory tests to determine whether or not problem drywall is present in a building. Could you just expand on that for a minute for our readers? And then when they want to hear more about it, they can go to ieconnections.com and read your article in the July, uh, July 2009 issue, it was actually. Well... I don't remember. I've written so many of these that I. You can usually you can tell you can smell it. I mean, if you're worried about it, you can if you smell that odor, you don't need to test to see if the odor is there. You, it's the same. If you see mold on a wall, you know you have mold. You don't need to test for it. It's the same exact principle. Um, I've never seen my wall, so I have to, I have to admit ignorance at some level. But most of the of the Articles that I wrote, that I read in order to write that part, that paper, um, said that that they could smell it and people were worried about it and were having trouble with it and they wanted somebody to come and test. And uh, my my position there was, well, if if that's if that's what you're if you're smelling the the sulfur compounds in the drywall, well then you know you have it. Or if you don't have Chinese drywall, it has a problem. Well, thank you, Dr. Burge. I appreciate you uh, answering that question for me. And once again, on behalf of the readers of Indoor Environment Connections, thank you for your monthly call, and we love it. Thank you. All right. Thanks for joining us, Glenn. We appreciate it. We're getting uh, breaking up just a little bit, Dr. Burge. I'm not sure why, but Cliff, let's try one more. Sure. Uh, Dr. Burge, can you comment uh, on your, or give the listeners your opinion on ATP bioluminescence sampling? Um. You mean with respect to an analysis technique? Well, I guess the value of it, you know. I don't know. Um, I, you know, ATP bioluminescence means that you have actively metabolizing things going uh, wherever you're testing. If that's what you're using it for, is a is a, a test of uh, the environment or a, an analysis method for environmental samples. That means that you have um, metabolic activity going on because a ATP is associated. With, with at least aerobic metabolic activity, so um, so that's what it means. Now, what how you interpret that? <laughs> again, if you haven't, if if this is for sampling, and you haven't specified in advance why why you're collecting those samples and what you expect to get out of them, you're not going to learn anything other than the fact that yeah, there's something alive on that surface. So I'm not. We're ready to start using it if that's. <laughs> um, it isn't something that comes up on the radar very often, at least not in just the general indoor air um, in indoor air uh, literature. So I'm, I'm stumbling around a bit, and I apologize for that. Uh, but it isn't something that I would use, at least not at this point. Okay. Okay. Well, that's good. Now, I'd, I'd just like to wrap things up here. I get the last shot at things. Um, I saw a presentation on a uh, flyer from the Indoor Air Quality Association's 2010 
program. I'm not sure if you even did this. I know your name was on there. I don't know if it was a you know actually became a part of the show or not. It was called Mold and Green Buildings. Are there differences to consider? Can you summarize for us what that presentation was about and what your yeah, thoughts actually, are? Yeah, actually, that was one of our um, our um, professional technicians that, that does our mold um, analyses. Um, she's a, a Ph.D. mycologist, really excellent, wonderful person, and I hope that she would be able to go and present that because she did the research, Michelle uh, Seidel from our Seattle office. Um, the green building... Um, Problem. The only green building problems I see are the fact that unless you get focus on the on the on water and make sure that you don't have any water penetration, many of the materials used in green buildings are highly susceptible to fungal growth. Um, cellulose insulation, for example, these recyclable things um, may in fact increase the risk of of uh, massive blooms. I've seen huge, massive blooms of fungi with with wet cellulose insulation, for example. So um, it, it's not a matter that the, the green buildings aren't are bad; they're good. Uh, but you have to keep in mind that the water um, uh, protections have to be even more stringent than they would for a, for my house, for example, which is all plaster and you know chicken wire and plaster, <laughs> where uh-huh. there is it's not a green building at all. Because it doesn't have any substrates for the mold to grow on. Is before we go, is there anything you'd like to add, Doctor Birch? Oh, I really appreciate the opportunity to um, to air my on a one-to-one basis. It's great, and I thank you for the good work that you're doing. Well, thank you for joining us. We really appreciate having you, and hopefully, we'll bring you back at our fifth anniversary or something like that. Great. All right. (laughs) Okay. Well. This is, uh, before we go, I want to make sure I thank my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. That was fun. Great show today. Environmental Annie, Annie Koalecki for uh, our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Weil. Of course, Glenn Feldman, IE Connections, What News? And our growing group of loyal listeners. Please come back. Join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. 